Human beings are amazing. I would like to argue this is because we have the capacity for smart or functional imitation. Smart imitation involves remixing what can be done with things, their uses or functionality. Many people think that imitation is the opposite of inventiveness. However, they're often not allowing for the impact of remixing. Hi, I'm Mike Metcalf. Imitation is an innate and pervasive characteristic in human beings. Nearly everything we do is a remix of imitations from other people. Children are imitation machines. The research by Andrew Meltroff demonstrates just how innate imitation is in human beings. Talk is that children are really wired for learning from the culture where they're brought up, and part of that is their intense interest in imitating socially the people they see around them. This is implicit learning. They are not being trained to do this, but they quite naturally imitate, copy the people in the world. They want to be like us, and there's obviously some very interesting neural machinery that supports this that we'll uh, begin to talk about. They use imitation not only to learn about the actions in their culture, the culture rituals and uh, mores and ways of behaving in the culture, but also the way that people in the culture use tools and machines, how to use a simple lever, how to act on objects in the world. So they're both learning about actions and goal-directed acts on objects. Also, as John mentioned, the intentions of other people, not just what they did do, but what they meant to do, are things that babies pay very careful attention to. Now, I know that not everybody here has seen films of very, very young babies in the laboratory that we have upstairs here in iLabs. We see about 5,000 children a year, and I want to just show you a 30-second clip of a one-and-a-half-year-old in an imitation study this is a child sitting across the table from me when I do a somewhat novel gesture of taking a camping cup and squashing it. She looks at the object up at my eyes, then we give it to her, and she turns it over and does exactly the same thing. Then, in order to test imitation, really look at novel imitation, we had the adult do something strange, like touch this object with his forehead. She's never seen anything like this before. Do you want to turn? and she imitates. So human infants have a real drive to act like the others they see. And all of you in the room will recognize that this poses a very, very interesting uh, neural problem about how the machinery of a young child can take the perceptual information and translate it into a like matching action themselves. Imitation, of course, does not just start at a year and a half. It starts earlier. Children are literally wired to learn from culture. They're born learning and I did a study with 19-hour-old babies in a hospital setting. This is a 19-hour-old baby looking up at a human face. You can see how interested they are in the human face. Uh, then the adult sticks out his tongue. The little baby's eyebrows raise, and she, 19-hour-old, looks at this strange biological movement, 
and she responds with tongue protrusion of her own. When the adult switches to mouth opening, you can see her eyes again converge and look at this strange biological motion, not just paying attention to the human face, but the particular moving internal details, and responds with mouth opening of their own. So th this is really interesting because the children have never seen their own face in their life. They can look up and see the face of somebody else, but there are no mirrors in the womb. They haven't seen somebody else's face prenatally, and they can't look down and see their own face. And yet, at birth, the human infant is able to take the visual information, the perceptual information, and translate that into a matching motor gesture, and that is very important. Our capacity to imitate does not seem to diminish over the years. Language is a classic example of our capacity to imitate. We imitate the sounds of our parents. The snow glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to be seen. Un royaume de solitude m'a placé là pour toujours. Culture is another example of imitation. We imitate the colors, shapes, forms, social norms, rules, habits, uh, ways of living from those around us, uh, forming our distinct culture. Everything we know is an imitation, be it our professional knowledge, how to make a cake, or how to do maths. We learnt all these things by imitating others. But it has been found useful to separate imitation into two types. Uh, really as a matter of emphasis. So the first type is simple imitation, where you imitate what's happening, what's being done, the appearance of things, the f if you like, the form. The alternative, which is smart imitation, imitates the uses of things, what things can be used for, uh, their functionality. We can imitate this from other people as well. Great study done recently of divergent thinking. Published a couple of years ago, divergent thinking isn't the same thing as creativity. I define creativity as the, the process of having original ideas that have value. 
Divergent thinking isn't a synonym, but it's a, an essential capacity for creativity. It's the ability to see lots of possible answers to a question, lots of possible ways of interpreting a question, uh, to think what Edward de Bono would probably call laterally, uh, to think not just in linear or convergent ways, uh, to see multiple answers, not one. So, I mean, there are tests for this. I mean, one kind of cod example would be people might be asked to say, how many uses can you think of for a paperclip? Well, those routine questions. Most people might come up with 10 or 15. People who are good at this might come up with 200. And they do that by saying, well, could the paperclip be 200 foot tall and be made out of foam rubber? You know, like, does it have to be a paperclip as we know it, Jim? You know. Notice how if we focus on the uses of things, their functions, we can move from the physical to the more abstract. So we can ask, you know, what uses can a paperclip be put to? What uses can a brick be put to? Or what uses are there for a tree? But I can also ask, what use is there for democracy, for freedom, for justice? These more abstract things can also be useful, full of uses. They have a function. And so notice how I've made now a significant cognitive step from the physical to the abstract. Yuval Harari calls these abstractions imagined realities or fictional stories. He argues they are very necessary to coordinate large numbers of human beings. He mainly uses the examples of heaven, money and nations. All these are made functional by defining them in terms of their uses. For example, what use is heaven? The real secret of success of our species is that we alone can talk about things that don't exist at all, anywhere, except in our own imagination, in the stories that we invented. All the other animals, they too communicate, but they communicate information about things that really exist. You can never convince a chimpanzee to do something, say to give you a banana, by promising that chimpanzee that after you die, you know what happens? You will go to chimpanzee heaven, and there you will receive lots and lots of bananas for your good deeds. No chimpanzee will ever be convinced by such a story to do anything. Only us, only homo sapiens. The easiest example to give is, of course, religion, but it's not just religion. It's the same with our legal system, with our political system, with our economic system. Money is also just a story. Chimpanzees and dolphins and wolves, none of them man uses money. None of them, they, they can exchange things. I give you a banana, you give me coconut. But the idea of money, this is something unique to humans because, again, it is based on a story about something that exists only in our imagination. We take, say, a piece of paper or a piece of gold, which is worth nothing. You can't do anything with gold. You can't eat it, you can't drink it, you can't wear it, you can't even make weapons out of it because it's too soft. So you take something without any inherent value, and you tell a story. Look, this piece of worthless metal, or this piece of colorful paper, it is worth 10 bananas. And if enough people believe that story, 
then it becomes an extremely effective story. Millions of strangers are willing to do amazing things and sometimes terrible things just for these colorful pieces of paper. This is the power of the human imagination. So we see then that Homo sapiens, in contrast to all the other animals in the world, lives in a dual reality. Other animals, they live inside an objective reality. We humans also live in this reality. We also encounter trees and lions and rivers and mountains, but we also have another reality. In addition to this objective reality, we also live inside a fictional reality, a reality that we invented, that exists only in our imagination, a reality that contains things like nations, which are just the stories that we invented, which contains money, which is populated by gods, which includes things like human rights, which again, it's our invention. And what is amazing about history is not only that humans inhabit this dual reality, the, the layer of objective reality and or, or on it another layer of fictional reality, what is really amazing is that over time, fictional reality has become more and more powerful until we reach the situation today when the very survival of trees and rivers and lions and chimpanzees depends on the imaginary stories that Homo sapiens has invented. We are living inside the dreams of mythical entities like the European Union and like Google and like the dollar, which exist nowhere except in these fictional stories. And you can test yourself, you can check for yourself Try to see what are you thinking about, what are you worried about during your day-to-day -day life. Many people find that they think very little about real things like trees and rivers and lions. And most of the day, they are constantly preoccupied by these fictional inventions like money and like nations and like gods and corporations and things like that. So, by focusing on the uses or functions of things, we are able to think about and combine thoughts on abstract concepts like justice, money, and nationhood. This issue of combining any two uses is quite interesting. John Dewey defines thinking as comparing any two conceptions. I can think about the use of money or the uses of nationhood using the uses of anything, work, horses, trees or axes. Any combination is possible. Douglas Hofstetter tends to talk, to call this combination process analogy. Uh, pervade every nook and cranny of thought, and that means the most mundane and the least creative, the most absolutely trivial kinds of thinking. And, and so my, 
my feeling has has come to be that that analogy making is the the key mechanism of all of thinking. In French, the word for paperclip, the standard word for paperclip, not a special jargon word, is trombone, meaning trombone, and you can see why it looks like a trombone. So you know, I I learned that word, and and you know, it's even used for things that don't quite look like trombones. You know, they'll, they'll, you know these things, these also. These are still called trombone just because it's a, an extension by analogy of the term. But I came across one day this object. I don't know if you can see it. But there is a, a particularly unusual kind of trombone. Uh, it looks like a violin. Analogies come at many levels of sophistication. Um, very simple ones, like between the shower that I'm using today to take a shower and the shower that I have at home, or a shower that I used in a hotel room, or a shower that I had in an apartment 40 years ago. Um, th those kinds of analogies are, are not, nonetheless, they can be very subtle. They can be, they can have a lot of depth to them, but they seem rather trivial and mundane. And then there can be very deep analogies that give rise to fantastic scientific discoveries. And we uh, cover all of this range in the book and try to show the uni to unify, to make a, a good, clear argument that the mechanisms that underlie these kinds of um, abstract connections are not different. What the, when, when the little boy plays with his toy truck on the ground, on, uh, you know, on, the, on, the, on the floor of his house, and calls it a truck, um, you know, and that's an analogy between his truck, a little tiny truck, and a big gigantic thing so big that he can't even imagine how big it is. When Galileo looks through his telescope, then he sees uh, things moving across it that take days to move across it, the little black dots that move gradually across it, and he thinks, hmm, maybe those black dots are going are objects that are going around a sphere. Maybe that white circle is like the Earth, and that the dots going across it are like our moon. Despite the fact that one is a leap of genius and creates a fantastic change in the, in the universe and the conception of the universe and cosmology, and another one is just a little kid playing with a toy, they're the same thing. They're the same mechanism going on. Many others have noticed the importance of comparison, analogy, recombination, or remixing in the process of creative thoughts. The act of creation is surrounded by a fog of myths. Myths that creativity comes via inspiration, that original creations break the mold, that they're the products of geniuses, and appear as quickly as electricity can heat a filament. But creativity isn't magic. It happens by applying ordinary tools of thought to existing materials. And the soil from which we grow our creations is something we scorn and misunderstand, even though it gives us so much. And that's copying. Put simply, copying is how we learn. We can't introduce anything new until we're fluent in the language of our domain. And we do that through emulation. For instance, all artists spend their formative years producing derivative work. Bob Dylan's first album contained 11 cover songs. Richard Pryor began his stand-up career doing a not-very-good imitation of Bill Cosby. 
and Hunter S. Thompson retyped The Great Gatsby just to get the feel of writing a great novel. Nobody starts out original. We need copying to build a foundation of knowledge and understanding. And after that, things can get interesting. After we've grounded ourselves in the fundamentals through copying, it's then possible to create something new through transformation, taking an idea and creating variations. This is time-consuming tinkering, but it can eventually produce a breakthrough. James Watt created a major improvement to the steam engine because he was assigned to repair a Thomas Newcomen steam engine. He then spent 12 years developing his version. Christopher Latham Scholes modeled his typewriter keyboard on a piano. This design slowly evolved over five years into the QWERTY layout we still use today. And Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb. His first patent was improvement in electric lamps, but he did produce the first commercially viable one after trying 6,000 different materials for the filament. These are all major advances, but they're not original ideas so much as tipping points in a continuous line of invention by many different people. But the most dramatic results can happen when ideas are combined. By connecting ideas together, creative leaps can be made, producing some of history's biggest breakthroughs. Johann Gutenberg's printing press was invented around 1440, but almost all its components had been around for centuries. Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company didn't invent the assembly line, interchangeable parts, or even the automobile itself, but they combined all these elements in 1908 to produce the first mass-market car, the Model T. And the internet slowly grew over several decades as networks and protocols merged. It finally hit critical mass in 1991 when Tim Berners-Lee added the World Wide Web. These are the basic elements of creativity. Copy, transform, and combine. Matt Rid Ridley uses the phrase, ideas have sex, to talk about this remixing. I'm a little nervous of the word ideas, uh, because I want to stick with uh, uses, functionality. Ideas historically refer to forms, ideal forms. I think we're most likely safer sticking with the remixing of the uses of things, their functionality. So when you listen to Matt Ridley, when he talks of ideas, think about the uses for things um, being recombined. Do remember that the source of these uses or functions that we are remixing into inventions, problem solutions, and whole economies come from copying others, from imitation. Smart imitation involves remixing the uses of things learning potential novel new uses or functions for things can come from one's own life experiences from replicating things that you've seen and done before but the vast majority will come from others when named when there is a word to represent a use or function which is remembered as a pattern of activity, it can easily be shared with others. Therefore, language acts to accelerate smart imitation. We humans have the gift of language uh, just by making noises, hisses and pops with our mouths while exhaling. We can send pressure waves through the air 
And these pressure waves then magically create ideas in other people's minds, right? So I can say something like, imagine an ovulating zebra riding on the back of a rhinoceros while solving differential equations. Um, and hopefully, if everything has gone well in your life so far, you've never had that thought. Uh, and now you've just had that thought for the first time just because I made those pressure waves travel through the air. Whilst making the point the language enables us to remix, the example of the zebra doesn't sound useful because it doesn't focus on the uses of things. Okay then, to summarize, this episode has focused on the system of imitation that we use to think creatively, and it's made a particular emphasis on imitating the uses of things. So we combine the use of a tree, firewood, oxygen, with the uses of an axe to bash, to cut, and we end up with firewood. For your organization, you might ask, who do you imitate? Put in more modern management language, who do you benchmark off, or who is your role model? Which organization are your heroes, or your those you would like to be like, or better than? This benchmarking approach to corporations uh, was very, very successful for the Japanese, who would identify companies overseas and imitate them. Of course, it's not always necessary to imitate things like their dress or the clothing or the logo. You've got to imitate what they do, what use they are to the customer. I've spoken elsewhere about recombination. We've talked about ideas and have talked about consequences, the use of things, what uses of things. But all those come after the issue of where do these things come from that you recombine or that, that have uses. And they come from life experiences, from copying other people, from being told about things in language. We imitate them from others. Thank you.